Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. What would you say your life's work is? I guess many of us wouldn't really have an idea. Or perhaps some of us do. We would say, well, it's my garden or it's my house or maybe it's my family. I sometimes joke that my life's work is a Word document that I've developed over the last 30, 35 years in Christian ministry. It's on my computer. It runs to over a 1,000 pages of type. I add to it every day. It's what I call my quotes, but it's far more than quotes. Every time I see a video or a cartoon or an illustration or a picture or a song lyric or a story, I put it into this file, and it's all categorized. So you could look up any subject like hope or peace or joy, and it will come up with cartoons and quotes and stories and songs. And there'll be a little date next to it as to when I've used it, if I've used it. About uh, two-thirds of it uh, has been used, about a third of it's unused. Some things I've put in 20 years ago and I've never yet used. Some things have been used once or twice. I sometimes joke of it as my life's work because I find it one of the most valuable things in Christian ministry and it's been built up bit by bit, day by day, year by year, and it's perhaps the only thing that I'll pass on when I'm gone that might be of any value to anybody else. An example might be that if you was to look up emptiness, what causes emptiness in my uh, file, you come across this quote. Many pews on Sunday morning are filled with people seeking God. This is from William Kemp. And so far, so good. Many pews on Sunday morning are filled with people seeking God. Well, at least they were. Many YouTube channels are filled with people seeking God now. Praying like mad, studying the word, he goes on, but who still wonder why God seems so distant. Now, now we pick up our attention. Maybe it's because our culture has taught us to pursue goals that do not bring us closer to him. Perhaps these goals undermine the relationships we are to have with him and with others. He's suggesting that many people who are looking for God in church actually feel further away from him. Now, that's a bit disturbing and shocking. But he's suggesting that the reason is that they have the wrong goals. They're looking for the wrong things in God. And he concludes by saying this, when we perceive our existence as a call from God rather than as a search for self, we free ourselves from the maelstrom of self-orientated ambition and find our ultimate purpose in life. That's where clarity is found, not in knowing what we are looking for, but in answering Christ's call and abiding in him. So what has all this got to do with John's gospel? Well, you may remember that in the last few weeks or a few studies, if you've been following them, we've been looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men and women and children on top of that with the, the remarkable miracle of just five loaves and two fishes that becomes multiplied into baskets and baskets of leftover food. I want you to hold on to the fact that he gave them bread. Now, after this miracle, the people were really keen for him to become king 
And they wanted to make him a great, powerful king, but he withdrew and didn't want that kind of leadership, that kind of role. And so he wanted to be by himself, and he withdrew. He sent the disciples off on their own across the lake, away from the crowds in a boat, and he himself stayed behind, hidden away, and withdrew. And these are all previous studies. And a strong wind grew, and a bit of a storm developed on the Sea, uh, sea of Galilee, and the disciples were about three miles out from land when they see a figure walking across the water to him. And they were terrified, as you can understand. We looked at all of this in our last talk. What is Jesus' response to fear? As he walks across the water, he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And we looked about how Jesus comes in moments of fear to reassure and to bring his presence Verse 21 says, immediately uh, they, were ta- they were at the shoreside. They took him into the boat, and immediately this miracle happens. The boat gets to the other side. And that's where we're going to pick it up, because the next day, 6.22, the crowd had stayed on the opposite side of this lake, realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they'd all gone away alone. I love the idea of them sort of scratching their head. Well, he wasn't in that boat, but there's only one boat gone, but he's not here now. And there's sort of great sense of confusion. And uh, some people from Tiberias land and, and say, you know, what's going on? And so they set out to look for Jesus all around the lake. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And you sort of sense his confusion and where, why and how, what's going on? He doesn't really answer that question. He goes right to the nub of the issue. He says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, he says, you were not interested in what I was pointing to. You were only interested in how it made you feel. You were not interested in finding out about the God who can feed 5,000. You're only interested in having more food. And so he's suggesting that they weren't seeking God for the right reasons. They just wanted to have more from him. And I suspect that is part of what William Kemp's quote earlier is about, of coming to church perhaps for the wrong reasons, seeking God for the wrong response. Because I think sometimes there are times when we are saying to God, give me all I want, instead of show me who to give to. And the problem with saying to God, give me all I want, is it's not really about what a relationship with God is about. He's not our personal genie, our our lifestyle guru. He's not there to answer our three wishes. He's there to express his love to the whole world and invites us to be part of that uh, revelation of love and of blessing others. And so there is a danger when we say, comfort me, instead of let me be a comfort. And that ultimately a religion that's based on God pleasing the individual neither pleases the individual nor God. 
Make me feel good, not I'll serve you whatever the feelings. And I think this is a particular problem in our Western Christianity where we, we want the feeling of peace, or the feeling of joy, the feeling of happiness. And we'll serve you, God, as long as you make us happy. But the moment it doesn't feel good enough, we'll complain. A question for reflection. Do we seek God for what he can do for us or for what we can do for him? Are we offering our gods, our life to God or are we trying to grab God for us? Are we kneeling before him or expecting him to kneel before us? Jesus continues, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which a son of man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I want to unpack that verse. Let's firstly look at this phrase, do not work. What is he talking about when we talk about working? He's saying that which is the priority, the thing that has the most effort in our life, the thing that we're going to put most of our energy into, what we most want. So don't put everything in and, and don't want as the most important thing in your life something that will go off, something that will go moldy, something that will not last, something that will not endure. Don't put your priority time. Don't put your money and your resources. Don't make sacrifices for something that will spoil. Your life's work, the thing that you most want to achieve with life, the thing that you're going to put all of your energy into, the thing that you're going to spend most of your resources upon, the thing that you're prepared to make sacrifices for, make sure your life's work is not something that spoils. Now, why does he use the phrase spoil? Well, he's giving the nod to a story in Exodus 16, which we looked at in one of our recent live streams. It's a story of the uh, bread from heaven, the manna. What's happened in this story is that the people of God have been saved miraculously from slavery in Egypt. They've been led out through the Red Sea. Moses has set his people free. It's a remarkable story. But very quickly, they moan that the food on their travel isn't as good as the food they had in Egypt. And they complain and they grumble. And God, uh, in his grace and his mercy and his provision, says, okay, I'll provide for you food every day, but you must depend on me. And so I'll only give you enough food for each day. And by the, end, by the next day, it will have gone off. So you can't exploit it. You can't get rich on it. You can't feel uh, build up barns and store it up you're going to need relationship with me every day that's a little quote when he says food that spoils because exodus 16 talks about this bread remember the bread in the feeding of the 5000 this bread that goes moldy and gets maggots it spoils so what might be food that spoils well food is something that we need but it mustn't be everything that we strive for. 
So he uses this idea of something that we need in life. We need to be able to eat. We need food. There are things that we need, but they mustn't become the be-all and the end-all. They mustn't become the thing uh, that we build all our life around. Now, if we are living in a country of drought or famine, then it may be that all our life is built around food. But for most of us, in most cultures, there is more to life than food. And we're not to build our life around something that is going to go off. We're not to build our life around something that becomes damaging when it is all there is. Carl Jung says the central neurosis of our time is emptiness. Why is mankind feeling so empty? Why do we feel everything is so unfulfilling and so futile? Well, I want to suggest that it may be because we are working for food that spoils. We are looking at things that we do need in life, but we're making them too important. Here are some suggestions. The first one is affirmation. Yes, we all need affirmation. We need to be appreciated. We need to be loved. We need to be valued. But if that becomes the goal, if that becomes the thing we work for, it becomes empty. It becomes narcissistic. It becomes a bad taste in the mouth. Everything we do is designed to make people like us. It's quite a problem. Equally, it may be that we build our life around attention. Um, having people notice us, having people take an interest in us is needed. It is food. It is valuable. But if we go out attention-seeking and we start to do unhealthy and damaging and selfish and destructive and manipulative things in order that we might be the center of attention, it's spoiled. It's got maggots. It's gone wrong. And the third area is what I'm calling success. And it's good to be successful in life. It's something that we need. But if we build our whole life and put all our energy and all our resources and all our finance into being successful, whatever we define successful is, whatever the cost, however, whoever we trample over, whoever we deny, then there's something gone wrong. We might work all our life to have more and more money, but actually it corrupts us and spoils and goes off. Or maybe, and here's the most controversial thing, maybe the thing that we seek after is miracles. And this is actually part of what this story is about. They'd come all the way across the lake because they wanted another miracle. They wanted more food. They wanted to see God do something dramatic again. And he says, don't look at the sign. Look at where the sign is pointing to. A hunger for the miraculous, a hunger for God to do something new that he didn't, hasn't done before from conference to conference, from meeting to meeting, can sometimes be unsatisfying. So we're not to be working for all of these things and putting all our effort into these things. Rather, we are to work for food that endures. In other words, he says, uh, do not work for food that's spoiled, but for the food that endures to eternal life. We work for what we can take into heaven. We work for what lasts. 
And I want to suggest three broad areas that are interconnected of what we invest in that we will take with us into heaven. And the first is our relationship with God, to understand his heart and his uh, passions and his nature, what grieves him and what brings him joy to sense and know and feel his presence, to recognize his voice, to learn the prompts of his Holy Spirit. That if we make that our life's work to know God better, it will never go off, it will never spoil, and it will last into eternal life. And as we grow and move into our new life in heaven, that which we've built in relationship with him now will be all the more in heaven. And the second thing that flows out of spending our life getting to know God is we then want to get involved with his mission and we want to be a part of building his kingdom. We want to serve him. We want to join in with what he is doing. We see what he is doing in our world and we say we'll offer ourselves to be a part of that. So we want to obey him. We want to serve him. And that lasts into heaven because in heaven we can look back and see that which we accomplished in the kingdom of God and we can see its fruit and we can remember and give thanks because it has lasted because the kingdom of God will last. And linked to that, and you'll see how these are all interconnected, is the third thing that we invest in, that we take with us into heaven, is the people who through our lives, our witness, our lifestyle, our modeling of faith are saved, the saving of souls. And so we need to make the thing that we work for as knowing God, being part of his work, and investing in the people he is saving. And then it says... Uh, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you. The Son of Man is the way Jesus refers to himself. And this word, which, I hadn't noticed before that I tended to assume that it was, this was that God had given us eternal life. But it isn't. It's the food that he's given us. In other words, he is giving us the thing to invest in. He is giving us relationship with God. He has opened a way. He says, come through me to the Father. I am giving you this food. I'm giving you a deeper and greater knowledge of God. And I'm giving you a role in the coming of the kingdom of God. I'm giving you what Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians called, good works prepared in advance. I've got tasks that I want you to do. I've got things that I've prepared this day, this week, this month, this year, this lifetime for you to do for me that in heaven you will see the fruit of. And I've given you the people to care for and to witness to. Not necessarily, in fact, probably not very much in our words, but largely in our lifestyle. And by using the gifts that God has given us, we bring salvation by our prayers. So God has given us the people this week who he wants us to impact for him. And that's what creates, is to, is to have our energy. That is what we're to work for. That is what we're to give, uh, our, make sacrifices for. To know God, to serve him, to love the people he's placed in our lives. And then he says, look, 
on him, that's on the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, listen to me because I am sent by God the Father. And they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? This is John 6, 28 and 29. Jesus replies, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And we've talked about this a lot in previous studies in John, so do go back and look at some of them. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It isn't simply to believe that he existed. Even the demons believe that. It isn't simply to believe that he was God, although that's absolutely crucial. It isn't even simply to believe that he died and rose again. I think there are many people who would give mental assent to that. No, the belief that Jesus is talking about uh, has a, a, a response involved. James Joyce says, the actions of men are the best interpreters of their thoughts. When we invite people to be baptized in the water, we ask them, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? To believe in Jesus is to believe these two things. Yes, that he's our Savior, that he died on the cross and rose again, but therefore the response is needed that we confess our sin because we need a Savior. And, we need, and to believe that Jesus is Lord is to say, yes, I believe that the way you want me to live my life is the way I am to live my life. In other words, I am acknowledging your commands and I'm going to do my best to keep them. In other words, to believe in Jesus is to offer ourselves as a disciple, is to say, here I am, Lord. I'm going to follow you. So Jesus is saying, look, if you want the food that will last, it's not simply that you believe certain things, it's that you work for something that I've given you. What have I given you? I've given you a relationship with God. I've given you a place in the kingdom and I've given you people to impact. And I want you to be my disciple and that will never rot. It will never leave an empty taste in our mouth. So, do we seek God for what he can do for us or what we can do for him? And if we've been seeking God for what he can do for us, has that left us feeling dissatisfied, disappointed in God? He didn't answer all the prayers we wanted in the way we wanted. Perhaps this confession is important for us. Let's pray together. Lord, have mercy on me. When I focus on my need, not on those of others. When I seek peace, comfort, and pleasure for myself alone and not for others. When I want you to fix my life and make it easier and I'm not prepared to make a sacrifice to build your kingdom. Lord, have mercy on me. When my eyes are closed and my ears are shut to the call of your spirit on my life, when I complain that life seems unfulfilling, unrewarding and empty, but do not offer myself to work for something that will not spoil, Lord, have mercy on me. Do we seek God for what he can do for us or what, for what we can do for him? 
And are we working for what will be in heaven? Are we working, putting our effort, our energy into our relationship with God? And are we working to build the kingdom of God? And are we working to help the lost be found? Is our life's work seeking that lost sheep, the 99th, who we went after, who we persevered with, who we prayed for, who we didn't give up on, who we kept on loving, who we kept on caring, who we kept on modeling Jesus to? And will our life's work in heaven be the people who we can see that we've impacted, who are in heaven in part, not solely, but in part, because we show Jesus to them. Remember William Kemp's conclusion, when we perceive our existence as a call from God, rather than as a search for self, we free ourselves from the maelstrom of self-orientated ambition and find our ultimate purpose in life. That's where clarity is found, not in knowing what we are looking for, but in answering Christ's call and abiding in him. What will be our life's work? Are we working for what will be in heaven, relationship with God, kingdom built, lost people found? Lord, help us to build what lasts. To build and make our life centered around what has eternal consequences. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.